Amen. Uh, turn please this morning to Romans chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10. <clears throat> The end of last year, and I intended this to be the final sermon of 2023, I took some time and spoke to us on the subject matter of prayer. It would be almost impossible to say too much about prayer. It permeates not only the every page, or not every page, but it permeates the text of Scripture, and it permeates the Christian life, at least it is supposed to. Um, in Luke 18... We learned that God wants us to be persistent in praying, to continue in praying throughout really the course of our Christian lives. Um, in Luke 11, we learned how to pray properly to make God the center of our prayers and the orientation of our prayers. And in Matthew chapter 7, we learned to pray sincerely that the fact that God knows what we need is not a deterrent, but, a, but an essential help and that we should come to him sincerely uh, in the recognition that he is God. <clears throat> and I contemplated, not that you would necessarily care, how much farther to go into the New Testament, because Jesus really lays a very solid foundation for us in the Gospels in prayer, and, and on, on the subject of prayer, and it becomes obvious as you read particularly the writings of Paul, um, <clears throat> that this was a man whose prayers were rich and complex in their theology and understanding the work of God in salvation. And I thought about exploring it, and then someday we'll come back to that. But I wanted to kind of close with this passage this morning. And really it's not in any way a complicated passage, but to use it as an encouragement to us, um, and an additional incentive to us in our prayers. Let's go ahead and stand, please. Just one verse this morning. <clears throat> Don't worry, I'll get that back tonight. <clears throat> but, but just one verse for us this morning to, to begin. And that is Romans chapter 10 and verse number 1. Brethren, <clears throat> my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And we're going to stop there. Let's pray. Father, deal with us as is necessary. We are all individuals in our hearts. While on the one hand are all the same, they are at different places and in different stages of spiritual development. Deal with us as necessary. Encourage us, <clears throat> rebuke us if that is required. May we grasp the heart and the spirit of the text. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may, of course, be seated. It is a model of evangelistic praying. It is a passage, I would argue, that is both helpful and, on the other hand, equally convicting. I cannot, again, speak for you, 
but I wonder if I could ever express in sincerity the depth of emotion that Paul conveys in this passage. My heart's desire, prayer to God for Israel is, that they would be saved. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are not written to cause us trouble. They are not written to cause churches to fight and denominations and brothers to split. They are written to answer a very real and very simple question. It is a simple question that has a very complicated answer. The question is, if all men are lost, and that includes Jews, Romans 1, 2, and 3, and God provided salvation for all men, including Jews, through Jesus Christ, Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And if the Jews are God's chosen people for salvation, Romans 2, 3, 4. Why are most Jews lost? And folks, you have to remember that when Paul is living and writing these letters, it wasn't just most Jews are lost. The Jews that Paul knew were not only lost, but they hated the church. And you are hard-pressed to find the account of any church in the New Testament that was not harassed and persecuted by the Jews. It was Jews that tried to kill Paul soon after his conversion to Christianity. Acts chapter 9. It was Jews who opposed the gospel going to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10. It was Jews who killed Stephen and brought about a wide persecution of Christians, Acts chapter 7. It's always the same pattern in the book of Acts. The apostles go first to the Jewish people. They go first to a synagogue. They proclaim there the Jewish Messiah. They are invariably met with widespread hostility that turns into persecution. So again, if the Jews are God's chosen people for salvation, and if God has provided salvation for all men in the person of Christ, how is it that so many Jews are lost? That's not a question that is asked just to ask a question. And so Romans 9, 10, and 11 are the way in which Paul answers that question. The answer is often not to our palates. And I would argue on the basis of the end of Romans chapter 11, not fully understood by any of us, no matter how zealously we hold to our position. But it is in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that Paul explores the answer to that question. And so we have Romans 
chapter 10 and verse number 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Because, verses 2 and 3, they are not saved. Even more, even more perplexingly, they are very interested in salvation. For I bear them record that they have a zeal according to knowledge, or zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So the Jews are not like American atheists who are impervious to the gospel, it appears, because they are completely and utterly indifferent to God. Quite the opposite. They are zealous for God. They are God's people. They know that. That is their claim. We are the people of God. Well, what about your Messiah? No, not him. So let me just walk through verse number number one, folks. Again, my my goal is not to. I mean, we're with some of the controversy is inescapable, but the race, the controversy is not the goal. The goal is to address chapter ten and verse number one to set before it, set it before you as a model for our praying. And I will do that by making three statements, or what I think are three things that Paul develops in the verse. First of all, the subject matter. The subject matter. And the subject matter of the prayer is salvation. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. It is a prayer for salvation. You probably know, or at least I hope that you know, two things generally about the book of Romans. Number one, it is a long letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, which he had not visited, in the hopes that the church at Rome would welcome him and participate in his ministry financially. We know that from chapter 1 and chapter 15. Number two, it is the single greatest concentration in the entire Bible on the subject matter of salvation why we need it, how we get it, what it means. There is no place in all the Bible where you will find more pertinent, condensed, to the point information about salvation than the book of Romans. It is a very weighty book. It is not everybody's favorite book. Paul is a mastermind who writes complex arguments. But there's the gist of it. All men need to be saved. Christ died to save all who believe. And the salvation that he secured really does something in the life of those that have it. It is not like a certificate that you can hang on your wall. It is a life-changing, life-altering event. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might have that salvation. Part of the explanation in Romans chapter 9 is that difficult passage in which God addresses his sovereignty over his interaction with humanity. And I mention that again, folks, not to cause a fight, but to point out to you that a man who said this Romans 9.11 For the children being not yet born 
neither having done any good or evil, so that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. The man that wrote that. The man that wrote that. God made a choice before anybody did anything so that he could demonstrate that he's the one doing something. The man who wrote Romans 9.15, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Conclusion, Romans 9.16, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Those verses mean something. And the only meaning that can be given to them is that God controls. God controls. The same man who wrote that. The same man who wrote that also wrote Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The same man that wrote Romans 9.11 and Romans 9.15 and Romans 9.16 also preached a gospel and invited every single individual to receive it. Acts 17.1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul as his manner was, went into them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, is your Messiah. And what I'm trying to do, folks, is place before us the entirety of the picture as Paul presents it, A God who will not relinquish his sovereignty for one single moment. I will show mercy where I want and I will not show mercy if I don't want. And I will make decisions before people are born to demonstrate that I have decision-making power. The man who believed that, who was confident in that, who proclaimed that, also preached to every human being that not only did they need to be saved, but that Christ would save them if they would call upon him. The same Lord is rich unto all that call upon him. For there is no difference for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in fact, folks, this man, this dedicated and devoted lover of the Jews, a self-proclaimed Jew of the Jews, read Philippians 3. This man became the instrument to reach Gentiles. Galatians chapter 2, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, the gospel of the uncircumcision, the gospel to the Gentiles was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, Galatians 2.8, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision The same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. This is probably, folks, this is the single most plausible explanation, by the way, for why Saul's name is changed to Paul. 
a Jewish man altering his name to accommodate his Gentile ministry. This same man, this same man is begging God to save the Jews. He is not leaving it to election. He is not leaving it to sovereignty. He most certainly is not leaving it to evangelistic technique. Win them by wooing them. In fact, look at Romans chapter 10 and verse number 11. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And that doesn't mean, if I can interject this, it doesn't mean shall not be ashamed of Jesus. It means if you believe on him, you will not come to regret it. That's what it's getting at. You will not come to the end of your life and discover, row, I have made a big mistake here. I put everything on Jesus and now I'm left holding the bag. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without preacher, without someone to tell them? They have to believe in someone and they have to know the someone in whom they're believing and somebody has to tell them. And how shall they preach? How shall they tell except they be sent? Somebody had to send them. Who was it that sent the ones to tell the message so that those could could hear and believe? Who did that? Whose idea was that? That's the point Paul is making. Well, you think it was our idea? You think that a group of guys sat around and said, you know what we need to do? We should, we should let everybody in on this. We, or, or even, let's make it really American. You know what we should do? We should figure out how to capitalize on this. Let's turn this religious gig into a money-making scheme. How shall they preach except they be sent? And who sent them? God. Back to the Old Testament. And yet, what is the result of that? What happens when God sends the messenger, like he has sent to the church, and they go out and tell others about Christ, so that people might respond in faith and believe in him because they have heard in him, verse number 16, but they have not all obeyed. And this is not new, for even Isaiah asked, who believes? When Isaiah preached, he encountered the same problem, and he asked the same question, who believes? And yet, Folks, this is the truth, verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You have to hear. You have to have faith. And this is the message of the word of God. It is not a psychological message. It is not a self-help message. It is the good news of God's word, salvation from our sins through the shed blood of Christ. 
And in verse number 18, have they not heard? Yes, the sound went into all the earth. And yet verse 21 to Israel, because we're back to the same question. It's the question that he's asking, then why not Israel? Then why not Israel? Have they not heard? Yeah, they've heard. Then why do they not believe? And that is, folks, isn't it? At some level, that is the... Who, how many have heard and don't believe? Why don't they believe? This same man, folks, this man is asking God to save people. He is asking God to save Jews. Why is God, why is Paul asking God to save Jews? Folks, this is, a answer, this is a question that we all ought to be able to answer without any reservation. And that is because if people get saved, God saves them. It will be God that saves them. They will not be saved by human device. They will not be saved by genealogy. There are numbers of us. I am one of them. I have 11 grandchildren. Our children are all professing Christians. As far as I'm aware this morning, all of our children and their spouses are in church or have been in church this day and are all raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And yet none of my grandchildren will be saved because they have Christian parents and Christian grandparents. doesn't work like that. John is very clear about that in Romans 11. It is not transmitted by blood. It is not transmitted by last name. Why is Paul praying to God to save Jews? Because if anybody gets saved, folks, it is God that will save them. God is our Savior. In Acts chapter 16 and verse number 14, the very first European that we know of that came to faith in Christ was a lady named Lydia. And how does the Bible describe her salvation? Whose heart the Lord opened. Can he open any heart? Paul believed that he could because he opened his heart, a Jew. So the subject matter of the prayer, folks, is that God would save people. And that ought to be an encouragement to us that God can save people and God will save people and God delights to save people. It is why God died as a man to provide salvation. Notice secondly, to go back to Romans chapter 10 and verse number 1, the subject matter, salvation, the subjects. Israel, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. Does this mean that Paul is not interested in Gentiles? No. But Paul was a Jew. And I think really, folks, that there are a couple of things going on here. One very simple and one a little bit more technical. 
Very simple. Paul was a Jew. And he loved his people. We are Americans. It's what we are. Are we supposed to love everybody? Yes. Is it a sin if our hearts lean towards our own countrymen first? I don't know the answer to that, but I don't know that it is. It's a sin to hate somebody because they're not an American. But we're Americans. The subject of Paul's prayer. That's the simplicity part. I do think there may be perhaps a little bit more complexity there. When Paul is thinking about Israel, and I don't really want to wade us into the deep waters of future events, folks, but there is a future for Israel that Paul has in mind. And I don't think that's beyond the scope of reason that when Paul thinks, notice that, that he speaks in verses 1 through 3 of the nation kind of collectively. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel, for Israel, for a complete and total group of people, is that they, plural, might be saved. For I bear them, plural, the rec- record that they, plural, have a zeal of God according to a zeal according to God, but not according to knowledge. For they, plural, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their plural, own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So Paul is thinking about them, folks. I don't think we can miss this, that when Paul is praying for Israel, he is thinking about them as a national entity, one dimension to his prayer, because this was just the way Paul's mind went. He was the whole orb theologian, everything connected to everything in Paul's mind. In Romans chapter 11 and verse number 26, Paul will think about Israel in their collective sense. And so all Israel shall be saved. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, the collection is that they will be saved. And they will. Now again, folks, I realize that that is an incredibly theological, controversial statement that I just made. But I believe that it is completely harmonious with what Isaiah is saying and Zechariah is teaching. So all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. You don't need to turn to it, but here is Isaiah 59, 20. The Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, for henceforth and forever. And then you add Zechariah 12. 13 and 14. Again, without losing our train of thought, folks, you and I can pray for Israel to be saved collectively for the same reason that Paul is because in one sense, 
To pray for Israel's salvation is to pray for the climax of earthly events. The great tribulation and the great arrival the second time of the Messiah who will come to rescue Israel. But to go back to Romans chapter 10, folks, Paul is not simply praying that great and mighty and large end-time event prayer. He is praying for individual Jews to be saved. Verse number 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. The salvation of Israel does have a corporate, we might say, dimension to it. But you don't have a corporate dimension without an individual dimension. Corporate. We are meeting today corporately. The church is corporate. We have come together. But the church can't come together corporately unless it is constituted of individuals. And Israel cannot be saved corporately until there are individuals who are saved. And so Paul's focus is also individual. And he takes that up in Romans 11 verses 1 through 5 because again, part of the question is, right, if God, if all men need salvation and God is the Savior especially of the Jews and all Jews are not saved, does that mean, folks, does that mean that God is done saving Jews? Maybe that's what it means. Maybe God is only going to save Gentiles from now on because he's done with Jews. That's what Paul begins in Romans 11. Has God cast away his people? God forbid. Don't you dare go there. He hasn't gone there. So Paul prays, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. It is a prayer loaded with emotion. Come to that in just a moment. It is a prayer loaded with emotion. Quite honestly, it is the emotion of the prayer that first convicted me to preach on this. The absence of such emotion in my very own life toward the lost. But it is not simply an emotional outburst. It is a very biblically informed prayer. It is his awareness of God's plan for Israel and the future that Israel has. So the subject matter of the prayer is their salvation and the subjects of the prayer are the Israelites. And then finally, the sentiment of the prayer. This is my heart's desire. And in fact, go back to Romans chapter 9. In verse number 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness, continual sorrow in my heart, 
For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You think about what Paul is saying, folks, and you think about the disclaimers that Paul brings to what he is saying. This is the truth in Christ. And I am not lying. And my conscience knows this to be true. And folks, I think we have those assurances because Paul is about to say something that could easily be dismissed as the kind of things that we say when we simply want to make a point. Look, right? We all know that it is a sin to lie. And, and in fact, it is more than a sin to lie. It is more than lying that is a sin. It is a sin to tell the truth in such a way as to be deceptive that is a sin. Thou shalt not bear false witness doesn't just mean don't lie. It means don't use anything to mislead people, even the truth. But for all of that, folks, we are very prone to exaggeration to make a point. Not in the attempt to deceive anybody. How hot is it out there? It's got to be a million degrees. How bad are the roads? We say things like everybody is doing it or nobody's going to do that. We're not trying to deceive anybody. We're trying to convey a point. And Paul here is reminding us that he's not just making a point. He is always sad about this. He is always broken. Always. Every day Paul thinks this, me instead of them, every day. Any moment of the day, any Jew that he meets, Paul would be ready to say, I'll go, I'll go to hell in your place. I'll take your punishment. You take my salvation. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. That is the sentiment of his heart. I would be their substitute if that would work. I would take their place if that would help. So that when he says, my heart's desire, what is it? <clears throat> it is his heart's desire. Which really kind of throws the gauntlet down, does it not, folks? Does it really not kind of throw the gauntlet down? How many people have we known or encountered or met in this life of whom it could be said of us that our heart's desire was that they were saved? That we really, really, really wanted them to be saved. That their salvation was a great burden to us. Oh, it would be nice if people got saved. And it would be great if people got saved. But here is a burden for people to be saved. So there is, there is, I think, a model of encouragement. We are to pray to God to save people because God is the Savior and He wants to save people. 
And we can pray for that salvation to be in the final eschatological sense of God bringing his purposes to a conclusion and equally for individual people to be saved. But what a sentiment accompanies that prayer. There are lots of things, unfortunately, that we might want that come well ahead of the salvation of people. Have we despaired? I don't know. Have we despaired, folks, of God saving the lost? Are we so despondent over the state of the world and the moral condition that we have convinced ourselves that no one will ever believe? Have we just, is, is this where a church, are we where a church can get? Should we, what should we do to despair of evangelism? Because nobody's going to believe, what's the point, who cares? It was not where Paul was when often his ministry was accompanied by great persecution Should we want this depth of burden? How would we get it? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it would be good to want it. I don't know how to get it for myself. What should we do? I would, I would suggest as a minimum, folks, that we should, if we are not, return to the practice of praying for God to save souls. And that we probably could put some names to those prayers. Certainly, folks, for our own children and our own grandchildren and the children of Westwood Heights Baptist Church, for any who are unregenerated. It is not possible that Paul knew the name of every Israelite for whom he prayed, but his desire was that they would all be saved. So it is not my intention this morning to, to beat us up, but to point out to us that God is the Savior. God is the Savior. And part of the church's privilege is to ask God the Savior to save the souls of men. And Paul did that. And he did it in great sincerity. And he did it in perseverance. And he did it with the proper orientation. Prayed for God to save the souls of men. And Paul counted the prayers of others as a tremendous benefit to his own ministry. Let me just close with this. 2 Corinthians 1.11 Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that group of people with whom he had such a tumultuous relationship, ye also helping together by prayer for us, He also helped me together by prayer to us, for us. So again, let me encourage you folks. Let us encourage each other to make praying for the souls of people to be saved a regular part of our prayer life. Let's go to the Lord. Father, to whatever extent we might need to be rebuked or corrected, please do that through the word. And to whatever extent... We need to be encouraged. Please encourage us from the word. You are the Savior. 
You're the one who died for us. You're the one who sent people out to tell the message of the death and resurrection of Christ. You're the one who loves the souls of men more than we ever could. We ask you to save people. We ask you to make us a church that prays that you would save people. In Jesus' name, amen.